Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 508. I am your host. It's Tony C. Smith. I forgot my name there. <laughs> Another dog just <laughs> licked me leg. <laughs> Put us off. <laughs> Good so, how is everyone today? It is the end of the month, so we have that little special treat. We've got Mr. J.J. Campanella in with his science news, and we have such a sweet, sweet story by Sui Davies Akungboa called Places, which was actually originally in, published in Mothership Zeta. Mothership Zeta, just if you were curious there, was a little an offshoot from the Escape Pod crew, you know, establishment there. So, and I'm not... 100% sure if it's still going on, not to be quite honest, but that was like a, a magazine fanzine that they published online. So do check it out, because they were just picking, you know, they were picking brand new stories out there as well, original stories as well in Mothership Zeta. So anyway, that, that's what's coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. We'll strum, just, oh man, Shall I start again or shall I just kind of... We'll jump straight in with places, like I say, by Sui Davis Akungboa, originally published in Mothership. Sui Davis Akungboa is a storyteller who writes freelance from Nigeria. His mostly speculative fiction has been published in, or is forthcoming in, Fireside, Podcastle, The Dark, and, like I say, Mothership Zeta. And the anthologies Lights Out, Resurrection, and A World of Horror Amidst Other Places. His non-fiction has appeared in Lightspeed and Chlorophyll. He is a character member of the African Speculative Fiction Society and the associate editor at Podcastle. So he also works in brand marketing, visual design, and audio narration. He lives online on Facebook and tweets at I am Sui Davies, blogs at suidavies.com. And chatters at his monthly Jabberwock after five writing shenanigans. This story is narrated by Aminda Badra. Aminda is a budding writer and aspiring on-air personality. As JC, she believes strongly in active citizenship and service to humanity. She loves reading and has a weird penchant for collecting hardcover notebooks. When she's not writing or trying to be a superhuman, she's either looking for X's to solve, or seeing movies or getting her heart broken by Arsenal Football Club. And I'll put a link on to where Amitna blogs at. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Places by Sri Davis Akungboa. 
In the southwest province of Abinu, our women are shackled, and we are glad to be so. Every single one of us, from the newborn infant to the senile aged, we willfully submit to the chains we are presented from the day we are born. And at adulthood, when the chains have transcended the physical and set up roots deep in the psychological, we are presented the illusion of freedom, which we willfully embrace as well. Even though it is difficult to understand, we cling to the regimens of valerian roots and catmins and the compulsory rigorous training on kudalini awakening. We take pride in the shiny silver bracelets, daily reminders of what lies unbridled within us. I wore mine until I was 20. It makes it easier to understand how, as Udazi will say, we all have our place. Nanavi has never shared with us this joy, or any joy for that matter. Her wide, slow eyes that have seen too much at 12 sift through the crowd of twins and find everything and nothing in common with them. It's little wonder she sits on the dirty veranda, right above the yellow bush by the steps, hugging her adobe-skinned self with adipose-filled infant arms and watches the party happen in the front yard. The lawn is filled with ten-year-old dreams. The boys harry and scuttle and play water wars by the pond fountain on the west, while the girls, under Nanavi's watchful eye, play what am I with nail polish, eyeshadows, mascara and blush. Parents are holed up in the living. I can hear Udazi entertaining them with his big booming bassoon of a voice that he seldom uses. And I am in the kitchen, on a break from keeping the children in line, heating up some popcorn in an aluminium bowl with an eye on the yard through the double jealousy. Thinking about it later when I feel the popcorn could have waited. One of the girls, Isewe, I think, from the Alili's three houses down, walks out to the group in a half-blouse, a golden face mask and a flamboyant skirt and a tiny waist, topped by rings and rings of multicolored beads that shake-shake with every step. Colors masquerade her face in what I figure should be makeup. She twists this way and that to the amusement of the other girls. Then, she wriggles her fingers and a tiny spark jumps from them, fizzes in the air and extinguishes. A little frown crawls up to her forehead as she fingers her bracelet, reminded of the reason for the inhibition, an ever-present mild annoyance. Then, she shakes it off and readies her two hands, lifts them higher, breathes in and draws in her sion. Sparks fly every here and there around her in a simulation of fireworks and ring down and singe the grass. What am I? she asks. The girls cheer and giggle into chatter, but I don't miss the subtle flicks of their fingers that send the shower of sparks flying sideways around them, swept by an invisible energy out of the way of their perfectly braided hair, their well-made clothes. I glance at Nanavi, hoping she missed it all, but her eyes are right there, taking in everything she can't become. The pain is like a heat wave around her, and I feel it too. An actress, one of the girls says. How can I be an actress, Isavi retorts. The girls huddle and squint their faces. I'm here, hand on pot, wondering how on earth she had found out what the belly dancer in the early millennium years looked like. The Alelis had plenty to answer when I returned to the living. 
Oh, I know, another of our eager one says. A dancer? Esiri's eyes lights up. Yes? She jiggles her waist again to urge the girl on. Yes, a what dancer? The girl's face is a poster for confusion. A very good dancer? Esiri blows her cheeks and exhales. A dead dancer, a voice says. All the hurts turn at once, including mine. Kedo is ten, but you'll never know. Half his mates are head shorter than he is, and his voice might be too early on the way to break in. Adding the fact that he has been shot across training twice, making him two levels ahead of his peers. And I can't blame the girls for the collective gulp they take. His birthday shirt... The black one with animated drawings of an early 2000s show about a boy who could change into 10 different creatures. I forget the name now. He had been so, oh my God, so ecstatic to get it for a birthday gift. It is now a shirt with a bit more design in the form of many tiny holes. Holes burnt in by the sparks the Aleli girl forgot to extinguish after raining her fireworks. He stands before her, red, chest rising and falling. The whole yard is on a playback post. Look at my shirt, he says. That little frown crawls up on Esavi's face again. What hap? Oh, she puts her hand to her cheeks. Oops. Kedo's chest heaves and heaves. My shirt, he says again. Sorry, the Alili girl whimpers. My birthday shirt. Sorry, I didn't know that. She doesn't see the water coming, or Kedo's fingers move. Even I don't. All there is is a little girl, clearly torn between remorse and amusement. And then there's water rising from the pond, hurling across the yard and meeting its target. The image that greets widened eyes and open mouth is now a dripping child in soaked hair and running colors. Esaewe's face contorts like this and that. Sparks start to jump around her, a Sion mixing with the churning rage in a tiny body, but thankfully held down. The silver bracelet doing its job well. Her mouth opens, building up for the shriek I sense is coming, but she never gets there. Kedo flexes his fingers, wriggles them like octopus tentacles. He's good with his sion, you know. Flexible. We know he will become a sionist one day, like the ones who train him. The problem is that he too knows this, and knows it too soon. It makes him feel superior in a way no child should. The water from the pond obeys his commands, I see through the jealousy. It rises from the pond, first in a stream, then up into something rounder, iridescent in the high noon. Kedo flexes his wrists and swings his arm like a professional dancer, molding sheets of water around molecules of air and plucking it in a global from the pond. It is a tough skill, something Udazi himself did not master until he was an adult. The ball fizzes across the yard and goes straight into the Alili's girl's open mouth. The girl goes down in a choking fit at the same time my hand flies from the heating port. Thinking about it later on, this is the point I should have run out. Yet something, 
I don't know what it is, makes me plant my feet there. Maybe some form of fate or universal ordination that needed it to happen. I don't know. Instead of succumbing immediately to my motherly instincts and dashing across the kitchen, through the living, out to the veranda and down into the yard, I opt for a bellow. But just as I'm about to holler my well-meant threat, Hey, Kedo, apologize now or you'll never sit on two buttocks again, through the jealousy, something happens. Kedo, stop that! Nanavi is no longer on the veranda above the yellow bushes by the steps. But she stepped down and in the center of the lawn, a few paces from the Alili girl. Hedo swings his eyes around and lets them rest on his sister. His eyes are cloudy now, seem darker than normal. There's something with them, something beyond mere annoyance. Something that digs deeper. It's that thing he's enjoying and it's irritated at being impeded. Don't be telling me what to do. Shut up, Nanavi says, in that calm but firm voice that I don't know where she got it from. It reminds me too much of myself. You can't be doing that. You can't be telling me to shut up, he says. I can. I am older, and Mama put me in charge of the girls. In charge of them, not me. I'm your older sister. I'm always in charge of you. Kiddo's chest heaves again at the word always. You're not my sister, he says through teeth. You're adopted. In the kitchen, I put a palm over my mouth. How can he say that? My feet shuffle restlessly, yet I still don't move. To my surprise, Nanavi isn't moved. She simply smirks and says, but so are you. Kiddo doesn't like that at all. The circles under his eyes become more visible as he wriggles his fingers again. A global of water floats from the pond and sits in front of him at chest height, his eyes shiny, basking in the glue of his own prowess. This one is much bigger than the one he let fly in the Alili girl, and it seems to have fewer air molecules trapped inside because the iridescence is gone. Then another follows in its wake, and another, and another, swift as the eye can blink. All at once there are five globals lined up in front of him, an array of water grenades ready for launch. I said stop that, Nanavi reiterates, her voice firm but now losing its grip. Or what? Kiddo replies. His eyes drop to her bare wrists, devoid of any bracelet, and with that one look he disarms her. I fully understand at this point that things have changed. Children may bicker and fight and that's all right with me. But when this degenerates into psychological warfare, then that is far too dangerous ground, especially with Nanavi. It took us a while to get it about her in the beginning, after the adoption. She was only seven thereabouts. She would paint a lengthy sheet of paper with shiny grey markers, then fold it into a strip and wind it around her wrist. She wore that thing everywhere, at home, at school, to the stores. The girls would tease. Hey, make a fire, Nana. Eh? Wait. You need matches, Nana. You need matches. And sometimes they'll be mean and yank it off. But she would have another ready before the next day. We didn't get it then. How being an orphan without psionic abilities was like being 
not even the lowest rung on the ladder, but the dirty brown sand beneath it. How that strip of paper was her little mind's way of surviving the world's cold shoulder. So, when Udazi and I decided she had outgrown it and made it stop, we didn't understand her spikes in anger and depression, her sudden loss of interest in everything. And after we got drained and tired of talking to a statue, we went and adopted a genius signing boy because we wanted to feel complete. And that was the biggest mistake we ever made. I think that was when she finally packed her bags and settled in Outcast Town. Nothing better than a brother to remind you every day that you're not only half a person, but half of what is half of society. The anger and bitterness ended, but a vacancy crept into her eyes and took up permanent residence there. We no longer had a statue, yes, but we had a numb mass with a cycle of eat, sleep, study, exist. Even the digs by the girls now ran off her like water on a greasy surface. She gave in to the prison of the pain, embraced it, lived it. On some lucky days, she set herself free for a minute and lived for that minute before returning into its cold embrace. On such days, I longed to be there, to make it last, to help her see that what she had was a gift, not a curse. A gift, Nana, because now you're your own place. You don't have to be like me, like all of us. But she wants to, and it eats her deep inside. She suffers, Nana. She does not deserve to be reminded every day. She does not need her fears that she is weak, vulnerable, that she is no one without psionic abilities to be fed. Which is why I finally gave in to motherly instincts and dashed out through my earlier pranged route. Kedo! And of course, as with all parental instinct, the people in the living room pick up the scent of my haste like bloodhounds and spring to follow in my wake. What? Hey, Mrs. Okuta! But we're all too late anyway. By the time my foot lands on the veranda, Kedo has swiped his fingers, and all five... Yes, all five balls of water have been flung at Nanavi at a speed that can only be measured in meters per second. We brace for the splash. Nanavi braces for the splash. Some of the men put up their hands and exert their psionic energies to hold the water up if it gets to the veranda. But it never gets there. A collective gasp does. That's when I see Nanavi. Hands held up at the ready, one eye closed and the other squinting, waiting for the splash. But instead, Kedo's globals, no longer globals now, but amorphous shiny things hanging in the air, are paused in front of her. Held up by her, in her control, waiting for her command. And as if reading an ordained script, Nanavi swipes her fingers in an imitation of Kedo's flick. The water responds, but not just blobs hanging in the air. The fountain pond, the speckles in the grass, the hecking dew, bless my word. In that brief flick, the whole world lifts. The pond rises to double my height and then collapses in the big, wet, heavy splash. She's, somebody whispers. And commotion ensues.
It's dark outside. In the front yard, there are no children. Everything is wet, but nobody bothered to clean up. The parents more concerned about whisking their children away from that cursed couple. The Alele's were the only ones who lingered even for a moment, but only for Frank Alele to summon all the water from his children's dress and hair, while Eji Alele warmed her shivering daughter by running heat-reading palms around her tiny frame. The way the three huddled and looked up to the house and spoke in low tones, I wasn't surprised not to see them there the next time I looked. The air outside is cold and still, and only the tiny dark patches in the grass are any sort of indicator as to what might have happened here hours ago. A night bird makes a sound in the distance. In the living, it's our turn to huddle. Odazi and I sit in the longer armchair across the wooden table and opposite an administrator from the Ministry of Psionics. This one is a long-faced man in round glasses, bearded, who introduced himself as Admin Kes Izosa. His face is as flat and unreadable as that pig of a man, the Minister of Psionics himself. Do they train them all to be like this? We start on our regiments immediately. There is no feeling in his voice, a flat, matter-of-fact thing. Kundalini with the very next admission. He nods to his briefcase. As for the obviator, I brought one with me. I looked with Dazi in astonishment, and he's focused on the administrator, careful not to meet my eyes. Something tells me that's my cue to let out my annoyance, so I go ahead and do so. Is that what you are calling it now? In my time, we just knew it as a manacle. Isosa's clear brown eyes behind the glasses meet mine. He's unmoved. That would imply you were in a manner of imprisonment, madame. Wasn't I? Aren't we? His eyes flick and shift, refocusing on mine. Fire is dangerous by form, Mrs. Okuta, unlike water. Even the tiniest of oceanic energies cannot be allowed to thrive until it is within control. So it's our pyroscience then. Isn't that what you're after? He pauses. Obviously. I would think so, I say, then sit up to make the next statement sound. That's why I'm curious as to why Nanavi needs a manacle. Obvieto, he corrects. Whatever, she's hydrocyonic, like the boys. He nods. Exactly. So? I fold my hands. His eyes stay on me. You saw what she did today. You were there. Yes, I retort. I saw what she did. I also saw what Kedu did. I don't see two manacles. Obviators, he corrects again. She's different. She's raw. I lift an eyebrow. So? You're an admin? I'm sure you've seen many wrong raw hydrocyonics. Maybe, he replies. Except they're all boys in training. I nod my head in triumph. Boys. The way I say the word, I might have as well hurled a little on his face. So it's not that she is raw or dangerous. She deserves to be shut down because she's a girl. He takes a minute to consider his response carefully. When it comes, it's weighted as expected. 
anomaly, he says, fishing in his briefcase. Not that she's a girl. She's an anomaly. He retrieves a silver bracelet and places it on the table, all receptors on its underside gleaming in the low-energy lightning. When he lifts his face, I swear I see zero trace of humanity there. Anomalies, he says. Aren't they meant to be... fixed? He rises up before I can reply, readies his briefcase, nods to me and heads for the door. Udazi follows to lock it behind him. When the door clicks, Udazi lingers there for a moment and turns to look at me with a heavy sigh. My husband doesn't talk much, but I learned to read the signs a long while back. I know, I know, I say, rising to pick up the bracelets. I know, we all have our place. Nanavi is under sheets, still unrecovered from the strong valerian root supplement administered to her after the afternoon episode. Her baby fat is spread across the bed in a half a sad manner in satisfied sleep, a manifestation of the freedom her body now relishes. The thought that runs through my head as I sit on the edge of the bed is, why now? Had it been dormant, perhaps? Maybe. Maybe because she had never felt threatened before. This was the first proper attack on Asion. Was it enough to awaken the sleeping giant? I don't know. But as I sit here now, I wish it had picked a better time. Like before she had to wear a strip of grey paper. I lift her chubby wrist and reluctantly place the manacle around it, clicking it shut to engage the receptors. There's a tiny whirring sound as the thing settles itself into her paws, into her body, into her souls, I think. I'm not surprised she stares, albeit dreamily. The bracelet's receptors are strong like that. What I don't expect is how she lifts her arm, peers at the shiny silver bracelet through slits, and actually smiles. One that stretches her lips fully wide, reflects deep in her eyes and reaches deep into her spirit. Finally, it seems to say, finally. I blink back the tears that aim for my eyes and head back to the kitchen, remembering the half-dawn popcorn. I go in and rest my two palms on the aluminium pot. Then I breathe deep and let out the tiniest of my sions, Stream by stream, just enough until the pot warms up and I hear the faint crackle of the corn. All the while, I'm looking out the jealousy window thinking about Nana. Thinking about how she finally found her place. Her place. Our place. And there you go. Huge thank you to Sui. Thank you so much, Sui, for that great, fantastic story. Oh, man, just so involved, so depth as well. Oh, thank you. And a minute, thank you so much indeed. Oh, thank you. So, like I say, it is the end of the month and just landed in my email the other day. Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and transitory microlegations, my tropoponically allegoric listeners, and welcome to this October 2017 Science News Update. 
I'm your host for this summarily Laptarian science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. This first piece of science news was just revealed today. All right, so for you, it'll be a couple of weeks ago. But what's interesting is, is that it actually took place several months ago. And uh, for reasons I'll explain, nobody was talking about it, if you could believe that. It turns out some 130 million years ago, two extremely dense balls of matter collided with each other. These two neutron stars, which are the city-sized cores of deceased giant stars, spiraled inward and merged to become a giant fireball. In that collision, they generated a sonorous ripple in space-time known as a gravitational wave. On August 17th of this year, that ripple from 130 million light-years away finally reached Earth. Researchers located at two different gravitational wave observatories in the U.S., Louisiana, and Washington saw the signal as a gravitational wave. These groups are called LIGO, L-I-G-O. The European collaborator Virgo didn't see anything, and uh, they think that that's, that means that the uh, wave originated from one of Virgo's blind spots. Anyway, as the wave moved through the observatory's tiny plot of space-time, it stretched and compressed their detector's kilometer-long arms, and it was the fifth gravitational wave to be detected by humans ever. This wave, however, was different from the previous four. First, it was the first gravitational wave ever observed to come from a neutron star's, as I said earlier, all the other detected gravitational waves have come from black holes colliding with each other. Even cooler, for the first time, LIGO and Virgo got a gang of old-school telescopes, like the Hubble Telescope and the European Very Large Telescope, to help out. Minutes after the gravitational wave signal came in, they alerted their observatory buddies and advised them to point their telescopes in this direction. Collectively, some 70 observatories were able to see the astronomical event by capturing different types of waves, X-ray, ultraviolet, optical, infrared, and radio. Combining their telescopic signals with the gravitational wave signal, they were able to locate the event and identify that it originated from two neutron stars, and then describe the collision in multimedia detail. Now, the most hilarious part of this story is that all the scientists, more than 1,500 of them, were involved in this gravitational wave work, and they all agreed not to tell anyone about it until today. Uh, I guess they didn't do a very good job because rumors have been circulating about this for the last couple of months in the scientific community. But uh, what do you expect for 1,500 people plus subsidiary staff? Let's continue on an astrophysics theme. You have probably heard about the hunt for dark matter, a mysterious substance thought to permeate the universe, the effects of which we can see through well, gravitational pull. There are, however, a number of physicists who are beginning to wonder whether dark matter is not just a convenient but fanciful theory. We'll ignore that and just continue with, with the idea that dark matter exists. So, if dark matter exists, there's a little problem. The problem is, is that with our model of the universe right now, there should be about twice as much ordinary matter out there, not dark matter, than compared to what we've observed so far. So the question is, where did all this extra regular matter go? 
Well, ta-da! The missing matter between galaxies has finally been found. This is the first detection of roughly half of the normal matter in our universe. Protons, neutrons, electrons, unaccounted for by previous observations of stars and galaxies and other really bright objects in space. Two separate teams found the missing matter, made of particles called baryons, rather than dark matter, and linking galaxies together through filaments of hot, diffuse gas. Because the gas is so tenuous and not quite hot enough for X-ray telescopes to pick up, nobody has been able to see it before. Dr. Hideki Tanamura, who headed one of the projects, published this month in the online journal Archive, said, quote, There's no sweet spot, no sweet instrument that we've invented yet that can directly observe this gas. It's been purely speculation until now, unquote. So the two groups had to find another way to definitively show that these threads of gas are really there. Both teams took advantage of a phenomenon called, hold your hats for this one, the sunyaev zeldovich effect that occurs when light left over from the Big Bang passes through hot gas. As light travels, some of it scatters off electrons in the gas, leaving a dim patch in the cosmic microwave background, our snapshot of the remnants from the birth of the universe. Now, back in 2015, a map was created that showed the cosmic microwave background throughout the observable universe with the sunyaev zeldovich effect being taken into account. Now, because the tendrils of gas between the galaxies are so diffuse, the dim blotches that they cause are far too slight to be seen directly on that map. Both research teams selected pairs of galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey uh, that were expected to be connected by a strand of baryons. They stacked the Planck signals for the areas between the galaxies, making the individually faint strands detectable by creating an N-mass signal. Tanamura's team stacked data on 260,000 pairs of galaxies. He found definitive evidence of gas filaments between the galaxies. Tanamura's group found that they were almost three times denser than the mean for normal matter in the universe. And the other European group stacked a million galaxies and found that they were six times denser, which was confirmation that the gas in these areas is dense enough to actually form the filaments. Tanamura says, quote, we expect some differences because we are looking at filaments at different distances. If this factor is included, our findings are very consistent with de Graaff's group. Of course, finally finding the extra baryons that have been predicted for decades of simulations validates some of our assumptions about the universe. These results go a long way toward showing that many of our ideas of how galaxies form and how structures form over the history of the universe are pretty much correct. Unquote. Okay, let's do a biology paper next. This latest piece of research came out a couple of weeks ago in the journal Nature Communications, and I was more than a little bummed by the results, let me tell you. It turns out that proton transport inhibitor drugs that keep you from getting acid reflux are not good for you. Notice, I did not mention any particular brand of drugs. <sighs> Turns out they're all not good for you. Why? Well, according to Dr. Bernd Schnabel of the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, stomach acid suppression in mice and humans alters 
specific gut bacteria in a way that promotes liver injury and progression of three types of chronic liver disease. Given the unhappy state of my stomach a good proportion of the time, I was not exactly thrilled to hear this. I take four to five pepsids a week. So that's that's actually a lot. Schnabel says, quote, Our stomachs produce gastric acid to kill ingested microbes, and taking medication to suppress gastric acid secretion can change the composition of the gut microbes. Since we found previously that the gut microbiome, the community of bacteria and other microbes living there, can influence liver disease risk, we wondered what effect gastric acid suppression might have on the progression of chronic liver disease. We found that the absence of gastric acid promotes the growth of enterococcus bacteria in the intestines and translocation to the liver, where they exacerbate inflammation and worsen chronic liver disease, unquote. It turns out that anti-acid drugs are among the most commonly prescribed medications in the world and available almost anywhere, even over the counter. They are also relatively inexpensive medications, retailing for about $7 for a recommended two-week course of generic over-the-counter omeprazole, trade name Prilosec. But the frequency of the use adds up. As one recent study estimates, Americans spend about $11 billion on these drugs every year. That was billion with a B. The University of California team wanted to determine the effect of gastric acid suppression on the progression of chronic liver disease. And so they looked at mouse models that mimic alcoholic liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and non-alcoholic hepatitis. In each case, they blocked gastric acid production either by genetic engineering or with a proton inhibitor, like a miprazole, Prilosec. They also sequenced microbe-specific genes collected from the animal's stool to determine the gut microbiome makeup of each mouse with or without blocked gastric acid production. And amazingly, they found that mice with gastric acid suppression developed alterations in their gut microbiome. Specifically, they had more enterococcus species of bacteria, which promoted liver inflammation and liver injury, which I said already. The authors noted that these phenomena increased the progression of all three types of liver disease, whether it was alcohol-induced liver disease, non-alcohol-induced liver disease, or hepatitis. To actually confirm that it was the increased enterococcus that made it worse, the researchers colonized mice with the common gut bacteria Enterococcus faecalis to mimic the overgrowth of intestinal enterococci they had observed following gastric acid suppression. They found increased enterococcus alone was sufficient to induce mild hepatitis and increase alcohol-induced liver disease in mice. Schnabel finishes with this very long quote. Quote, our findings indicate that the recent rise in use of gastric acid-suppressing medications might have contributed to the increased incidence of chronic liver disease. We believe clinicians should consider withholding medications that suppress gastric acid unless there is a strong medical indication. Also remember that even non-proton pump inhibitor-based antacids, Pepto-Bismol, Tums, Tagament, Zantac, they all still suppress gastric acid to a lesser degree. 
Any medication that suppresses gastric acid effectively could cause changes in gut bacteria and thus potentially affect the progression of chronic liver disease. We recommend non-pharmacological methods for managing heartburn as an option for some patients, including losing weight, reducing intake of alcohol, caffeine, and fatty and spicy foods, unquote. Oh, joy. Not only do I need to give up my Pepsid, I need to give up my spicy, fatty, caffeinated food as well. Uh, well, this is more dire than global warming, folks. Oh, the humanity. Let's talk about something completely different. Here in the Northeast United States, it's now autumn, and that means leaves turning color and falling to the earth in a beautiful procession of changes. I guess it's appropriate to talk about leaf fall at this time of year. And oddly enough, it was not until relatively recently that plant biologists figured out how the color changes actually occur. The process that I've described where leaves, leaves turn color and fall is called leaf senescence. And in it, chlorophyll breaks down, leaving behind yellow and orange pigments, as well as red pigments synthesized from sugars. In 2006 and 2007, several research groups identified a gene that they believed influenced chlorophyll degradation. The gene is called stagreen, SGR, which, interestingly enough, was described way back in the mid-1800s by Gregor Mendel in his famous pea plant experiments. However, the researchers were unable to pinpoint SGR's exact function in a larger senescence process. This year, Dr. Hisashi Ito and his team of scientists at the Institute of Low Temperature Science at Hokkaido University unearthed new information regarding pigment degradation, and they published their findings in the journal Plant Cell. Ito says the SGR gene codes for magnesium dechelatase, the last unidentified enzyme in the chlorophyll degradation pathway. Ito says, quote, we believed it was important to complete the metabolic pathway to understand life. Chlorophyll degradation is important in how it optimizes the photosystem to the light environment. It also helps to maintain cell viability during senescence, unquote. During the first steps of senescence, magnesium dechelatase pulls a magnesium ion from a chlorophyll molecule, and thus it degrades the chlorophyll to a molecule called pheophytin, an important molecule in the electron transport chain. Ito observed this process by temporarily inducing SGR expression in excised green thale crest leaves for 30 hours. Compared to wild-type leaves, they saw a reduction in chlorophyll levels and an increase in pheophytin and noticeable color changes in the test group. The team complemented this finding by also incubating chlorophyll in vitro with the enzyme, which resulted in a more efficient conversion of chlorophyll to pheophytin. To further confirm uh, the SGR's function, the group introduced the gene into a cyanobacterium called Senecococcus elongatus, which has no endogenous dechelation activity in it, nor does its genome contain any genes with significant homology to SGR. And to their surprise, the Senecococcus successfully expressed the SGR, which led to low levels of chlorophyll content 
and much higher levels of pheophyton and other converted molecules. With that last piece of the puzzle in place, Ito and his colleagues now plan to focus on other mechanisms at play during senescence. All right, next story. More science fraud! Wow, you can't trust those scientists at all, can you? Here's a story I came across. Last month, a protein engineer who studies biofuels at Virginia Tech was arrested on charges of defrauding the U.S. government. Yi Hang Percival Zhang, along with his postdoc Chun Yu and his former student Zi Guangzhu, are accused of misusing grant funds topping over a million dollars. Let me say, any of you listeners in the U.S. government granting agencies, I would never defraud you guys. Just watch. You give me a million dollars for my research, and you will see. You will get back real research. (sighs) Anybody? Anybody at all? Come on. Just an offer. Half a million. I'll take 250000 Why is it that the rotten ones always get the grant money? Well, according to his lawyer, Dr. Zhang insists he's innocent. Zhang's lawyer, Scott Austin, says, quote, Dr. Zhang maintains his innocence and intends to vigorously fight these charges, unquote. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's complaint published in the Washington Post, Zhang took money from the National Science Foundation and Department of Energy for work that had already been done and finished, and he didn't distribute the funds appropriately to the university. Zhu and Yu allegedly submitted false claims to the government and, quote, conspired to engage in a scheme to defraud the NSF, unquote, according to the complaint. Zhu and Yu, by the way, now work for the Tianjin Institute of Industrial Biotechnology in China, where Zhang is also affiliated. Oh yeah, good luck getting those two back off of communist Chinese soil for extradition. Like that's ever going to happen. Anyway, according to the Roanoke Times, Zhang is in additional legal trouble. A former employee of Zhang's startup company, Cell Free Bioinnovations, is suing him for taking confidential information to another firm. Good luck, Dr. Zhang. You're going to need it. Perhaps you should have fled to China with your compatriots. Last story of the evening. A caterpillar that can mimic a bird's warning. North American walnut sphinx moth caterpillars look like easy meals for birds, but they have a trick up their sleeves. They can produce whistles that sound like bird alarm calls, and they can scare potential predators away. When they first heard this, scientists suspected birds were simply startled by the loud noise, but a new study presented at the International Symposium on Acoustic Communication by Animals in Omaha last July, suggests some more sophisticated mechanism. The caterpillar's whistle appears to mimic a bird call, sending avian predators scrambling for cover. Main author Dr. Jessica Lindsay of the University of Washington says, quote, This is the first instance of deceptive alarm calling between an insect and a bird, and it's a novel defense form for an insect. It is pretty wild, unquote. When pecked by a bird, the caterpillars whistle by compressing their bodies like an accordion and forcing air out through specialized holes in their sides. The whistles are pretty loud, considering they're made by a two-inch-long insect. They've been measured at over 80 decibels from five centimeters away from the caterpillar, 
That's about the same level of noise as a garbage disposal makes. Okay, listen to this. This is a recording of these little buggers. In a laboratory experiment, birds responded to caterpillar whistles by jumping away and abandoning their predation attempts. This behavior was initially attributed to a general startle response, as I said earlier, but to Lindsay, those whistles looked acoustically similar to alarm calls made by birds called seat calls. Many bird species produce and recognize seat calls, which are short, high-pitched tweets made when a flying predator is spotted. Upon hearing a seat call, birds will scatter and drop to low bushes for cover or just freeze in place. Lindsay played recordings of caterpillar whistles, black-capped chickadee seat calls, and house finch songs as a control to flocks of wild birds at backyard feeders. The bird feeders Lindsay targeted were most often visited by black-capped and mountain chickadees and red-breasted nuthatches but numerous other avian species stopped by during the study. Lindsay played her experimental sounds in random order, recording video and audio for two minutes before the playback, during the one-minute playback stimulus, and then for five minutes after the playback ended. The birds ignored the finch song, but responded to the caterpillar whistles and the seat calls in the same way, diving for cover, freezing, and making their own alarm calls. The behavior was the same regardless of the species. Lindsay finished with, quote, For both the genuine alarm call and the caterpillar whistle, birds responded by fleeing the bird feeder and taking a long time to return or freezing in place. If nuthatches were present, we would see them flicking their wings, which is a sign of distress. We found that initial responses to alarm calls can depend on a simple acoustic feature like peak frequency, so it seems plausible that a caterpillar sound could mimic a key feature of seat calls, unquote. Lindsay is currently analyzing the audio recordings from the playback experiments to uncover any pattern in the calls birds made in response to the different stimuli, as well as the acoustic structure of those calls. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Maybe cut down on proton pump inhibitors until we know more. Don't trust caterpillars. They're all liars. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And I thank you once again. Jim, thank you so much. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Do think about supporting her and, you know, looking after, looking after the girl there. You know, keep her going. And just let everyone know. Did I mention this on, on the last week's show? All, all books are delivered, all rants are delivered for the Kickstarter. So I've kind of put that little episode to bed. If anyone's interested in getting a book or anything like that, do let us know. I think it does go, I think I've said release for, think, but it's, it all depends how the software works for us. Round about the, the beginning of December. That is my date for letting it go to the general public as well. So, there you go. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. Best I move slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Yeah, they're